The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. The file name is DPBLPRNT. DPBLPRNT. Daily Planet Blueprint? Just call it up. You must be interested in architecture. I've always found this building particularly fascinating myself. There it is. Bring it up. Yes, sir. Daily Planet Blueprint. Bring the equipment up here. What could possibly be here in the Daily Planet newsroom that would be worth risking your lives and the lives of everyone in Metropolis? What else is man sought after without pity or remorse since the dawn of time? Inner peace? Cold, hard cash. Oh. Now print me out those plans. Sure. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 19th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Well, I'm sure that there are many who would argue that cold, hard cash is the means to inner peace. And cold, hard cash is one of our themes of the day for the love of money and for the lust of money. It's remarkable in this day and age how many people still believe that money is the root of all evil. And then after arriving at that conclusion, proceed to insist that the root of all evil should be redistributed (laughs) from those who earn it to those who did not. Is that a weird phenomenon or what, Robert? If it's so bad, why why do you want want to redistribute it? Right. It's so contradictory, but that's part of what we'll be getting in today. What do you have on mind for your part? Of the show today, oh, Robert. I'm going to titillate our audience by just saying that in the last half of the show, I'm going to be talking about the F word. Uh-oh. You can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. So today we're going to visit the front lines of the never-ending struggle, conflict, and debate, both in theory and practice, between freedom and capitalism and all of the other isms and schisms. So I thought I'd share with our listeners today some of the conversations back and forth on Just Right's Facebook ad, which simply invited people to check out our show. And those who reacted negatively to our promotion posted some very interesting comments on our page, comments that actually cover the broad theme of what Just Right is about from politics to economics to political correctness and language. And if there's a consistent message I keep hearing from a great many people, it is that essentially one betrays a deeply ingrained anti-capitalist mentality and outlook, a view that, if simply thought through, would not hold up. And it's just amazing how many people continue to hold that viewpoint. And I think at the root of the problem is one of definition, Most people in the anti-capitalist mindset are of the opinion that, well, we have capitalism now, right? Isn't that what you hear from everybody? It is. Yeah. When practically, in in the areas of complaint or objection, especially their objections, (laughs) that's not so. Capitalism doesn't exist. So you can see that in the opinions being expressed. 
Now, and keep in mind that these comments were originally motivated simply by our identifying our show as about being about freedom and capitalism. And what came out of that was a discussion about money, power, freedom, slavery, poverty, wealth, and of course capitalism, which is both blamed and praised for just about everything. And one of the first things posted was, and this, I think this might have been the first post, was by Jerry P. And we were just using initials for last names, although if you go to our Facebook page, of course, the names might be there. And he just wrote, capitalism equals slavery, robber barons, indentured servitude, mudsill theory, and the 1%. And I wrote back to him, I said, I said, listen, you have it exactly backwards. The choice is capitalism or slavery. And another person chimed in, Lauren G, says, capitalism is the new golden rule. Them with the capital are allowed to break all the rules. And Jerry P chimed in, ah, capitalism has been doing that since before the wealth of nations was written. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's a little closer to the mark. And here's what I responded to them. I said, listen, the love of earning money is the root of all good, and that's capitalism. The love of stealing and expropriating money, fascism, socialism, communism, and other forms of collectivism, is not a root of some evil. It is evil itself. The root of all evil is the desire for the unearned or wanting something for nothing. And of course, the implementation of that evil is always the initiation of the use of force against those who hold the wealth. And we've seen this in history. But, and I don't know what you think about this, Robert, you have to kind of admit, though, that if someone believes that capitalism is slavery, then their opposition to that kind of capitalism, even though their epistemology is all screwed up, the moral objection to it would be something virtuous from their point of view, wouldn't it, if they saw it as slavery and believed it was slavery. But even so, that would still confront them with an epistemological puzzle. If capitalism equals slavery, then why do we need two words? Why not just come out and say slavery all of the time? Forget about capitalism. And if capitalism was slavery, then what would be the possible correct word to describe an economic system that's opposed to slavery? There is none. That's it, isn't it? Can you think of one? It's funny you're bringing bringing this up because I'm going to be talking about this this very thing about slavery and in in the last half. Well, this is just in passing with these comments right now, but... You know, I think that Jerry P. and all the other commenters who are against capitalism, they really think that they are doing good by opposing something that they think is slavery. I mean, if they really think capitalism is slavery, then their their motivation is correct. Right. That they're 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 coming from an, a a situation or a position of morality. The problem is that they don't understand what capitalism is. It is like Ayn Rand said, it is an unknown ideal. (laughs) Talk about leading into my next point, because again, the reason that people are saying things like capitalism is is slavery is to destroy the concept of capitalism. And that's a motivation that sometimes people psychologically are not aware of. I think that they're simply parroting um, There's a lot of that the, going the, the on. media, the schools, the teachers, the university professors. They're not, this is not something new. This has always been done right. before. So this, Jerry P. and his uh, fellow uh, commenters are simply um, part of society's ignorance of what capitalism is. So it's up to us, Bob, to educate them. Well, pretty much, because if they don't know the words, they ha- they, they'll never be able to see an alternative to a given political problem. They just won't find it. And that was the very point of Ayn Rand's Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. She stated in her introduction to that book that it wasn't her intention to promote capitalism, but simply to define it. 
And given the proper definition and context, Rand believed, that would automatically cause people to support capitalism. And it's true. Once you know what it is, your mind doesn't switch back anymore. It becomes a concrete fixed value to you. If you didn't have that term, as a result, every time you'd want to discuss either freedom or, or capitalism to someone, you have to, you're forced to describe it in long sentences and stories. Well, it's where people aren't allowed to use force against each other, the economic condition where consent between the negotiating parties exists, where the law of supply and demand is kept free from government, etc., where all property is privately owned, and in which individuals, I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many elements to capitalism. And you know what is, is ironic or funny, I guess, what? is that before about 1848, which is when the Communist Manifesto was published, people never used the word. Correct. People went about their daily transactions, lived under basically capitalist systems of economics, until Karl Marx came along and started to define it. Yes. and He, and he coined the term. Yes, and he used it as a pejorative to create a class structure between the rich and the poor. And he did a good job of it. He did a very good <laughs> job of it. So you can see how language is being used to stop people from using language, <laughs> from talking. It's amazing how the debate is being closed. Here's another comment from Paul C., uh, again, to our post. There are estimated to be more slaves, not including indentured servants, in the world today than at the height of the U.S. slave trade. So, yeah, capitalism isn't the answer to slavery. Human decency and respect are, both of which are corroded by the insertion of monetary value into every crevice of life. Wow, what a statement. Now, of course, he's quite correct to say that slavery is still practiced widely around the world. But that's because these areas do not practice capitalism. Capitalism is far more than, quote, an answer, end quote, to slavery. It literally is the opposite of slavery, by definition. That's why the capitalist northern states went to war against the slave states of, of the South in America's Civil War. Capitalism does not tolerate slavery. And then there's the issue of money. You know, this, this, this insertion of money into, of, and value into everyone's crevice of life, of course. Money is a means of exchanging values between human beings who have decency and respect for each other, that respect being reflected in their mutual freedom and the right to consent to any economic trade or exchange. This condition is known as capitalism. The corrosion, quote-unquote, that's part of all non-capitalist systems is the obviation of consent in economic matters. Monetary value is the result of human decency and respect, since all things of value are freely and rationally chosen. Those who choose to steal or expropriate those values from the people who earn them are the source of the corrosion or corruption. Indeed, the very use of the term cor corrosion refers to a corrosion of capitalism. Psychologically, this is how wanting something for nothing sounds in practice, some variant of a condemnation of money as the means by which we ensure that the equation is always something for something, a trade, an exchange. That's what they want to avoid. And there's Paul C., who writes again, 60,000 slaves in the U.S., and then let's talk prostitution, which is also a form of slavery, selling sex for money. I'm sorry, but I completely disagree with your conclusions, he writes, and I responded. For the record, selling sex for money is not slavery. Being forced to sell sex for money is. Then he wrote back, prostitution isn't exactly the prostitute's first job choice. You are aware enough to realize that, right? He says, I'm all for people being self-determined, but the fiction that capitalism provides that is a narrative sold by the rich to the rich. 
The system works for some, but profoundly not for others. Unlike other systems, capitalism makes the claim that it is inclusive. But of course, any child knows a competitive event is the opposite of inclusive. Wow. Are you rich, Bob? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I <I'm>, wish. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways, I, I, I responded. I said to him, look, as long as it's the person's choice, where it ranks in that person's job choice category is irrelevant. Working in factories or as a cab driver may also not be a person's, quote, first job choice. Like freedom and like the air we breathe and like capitalism, all are necessary conditions to the well-being of humans, but not sufficient in the sense of providing humans with the physical necessities of life. That requires production and trade, which ironically brings us back to the necessity of capitalism again. Paul writes back again. It isn't the money that removes the slavery unless that money is given to the poor and defenseless to make them more powerful, which is basically the opposite of capitalism as it exists today. But the question to be asked, and I asked him, I said, whose money should be given to whom and by whom? How will this money be quote-unquote given? Without capitalism, which would allow all to gain in a win-win economic relationship, there can be no giving, just taking by force. Capitalism, quote, as it exists today, end quote, is not capitalism. It's some variant of forced collectivism. Here's the response he gives me then. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's apathy. Collectivism isn't necessarily a bad word, but it gets co-opted by the powerful as a means of gaining wealth, which is what they do with every human idea, value, or creation. And all I could say to that, a forced collective is evil. A voluntary collective is good. And then Lauren G. writes in and chimes in, No one preys more on the weak and the poor than capitalists. There might have been or originally been good in capitalism, but all that went into the crapper back in the Reagan days. <laughs> to which I responded, Really? Capitalists prey on the poor? Wouldn't they prefer to prey on the rich? That's where the wealth is. What is there to gain from those who have nothing? The very notion is ridiculous. Now, my guess is that you consider a capitalist offering a job or a financial assistance to the poor as praying. And to say that there might have originally been good in capitalism does not change its definition. Individual rights, private property, voluntary and consensual economic transaction, a government committed to keeping the market free, since when have these fundamental values become undesirable? And since when aren't they still good? 1848. <laughs> Jerry P. writes back, Sorry, just right. Money itself is not the means of production. Humans are. Individual and collective work, capitalism, exploits the work of others because their love of money. Well, if you that, use that word exploit, then yes, you're right. Exploit means to use. Well, and the, the, yeah. That's so a, a person uses the work of his workers, but he pays them for it. Yeah, that, there is a reciprocation there. Yeah, exploitation means you don't pay the person. You know, there's, there's no consent and there's no agreement. But I did, you know, I didn't bring up production. I said, who said anything about production? I said, uh, you know, I, he's switching the subject from the one he raised, the love of money, okay, to production because of an unwillingness to deal with the distinction between what is earned and what is taken by force. This is the issue that everyone avoids. Both parties in any voluntary exchange, employer or employee, are acting in their own self-interest and for the purpose of earning money. It's a win-win situation. But... Jerry's perspective does not even allow for a win-win situation to even exist anywhere in, in his mindset. He says, capitalists historically assume control over benefits they didn't create and didn't earn. Assume control? What does that mean? Take over by force? Trade? Buy? There's a big difference. 
The Industrial Revolution was made possible by the emergence of the condition of capitalism. What started the Industrial Revolution was the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. Freedom and capitalism were the emerging conditions that made the emerging industry possible. And then again, Jerry, the Industrial Revolution was created by mechanics and other inventors, most of whom were squeezed out of their lives, life's work by the people who capitalized them. That's, that's, un, that's, that's so non sequitur how he can even say that. It's just simply yeah. wrong. Yeah. How, how does a mechanic or inventor become capitalized? The vocabulary is outrageous. There's a mix of categories, context drops. All have the wrong definitions and still haven't addressed any points that we've countered with. He writes, so keep your delusional ideology and all that has made the modern world a sewer of greed. And I wrote back, it's not our delusional ideology that's at issue here. It's clearly the inability to express any ideology beyond using meaningless and contextless terms like a sewer of greed. It's meaningless. And in his final statement, social Darwinism is bad science dominant predators aren't actually the most powerful life forms on the planet. Symbiotic ones are humans can breathe for ourselves or metabolize our food ourselves. The symbionts in ourselves do that for us. Mutual benefit, not objectivist individualism, is the future. <laughs> well, I've, I've only got one thing to say to that. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what I told him was, I said, while I have no idea what Jerry's trying to get across with his symbiont statements, I certainly do understand his last sentence. Mutual benefit and objectivist individualism go hand in hand, and it could not be otherwise. The ruling principle of mutual benefit is consent, the fundamental condition necessary to any system that can rationally be called capitalistic. Only individuals are capable of consent a right enshrined by the concept of individual rights. It's not one or the other, it's both or none, mutual benefit and individualism. But the evidence of capitalism's profound superiority in creating wealth and the betterment of mankind abounds. Yet no one calls those who brazenly deny the evidence deniers. Maybe we should. It's a term that the left seems to understand. Ron, what are you doing? These are my profits, Chief. My entire... Fortune. It may be small, but it's mine. Why the two piles? I'm thinking of giving this pile to Lita. That way, maybe she'll sign the WPNP. You're offering her a bribe? Bribes can be very effective. But if she signs the waiver, then she can't own anything, so she'll have to give it all back to you. Right. That's not going to work, is it? <sighs> Rum. I don't think there's any way you're going to convince Lita to sign that waiver. Have you ever looked at Latinum? I mean, really looked at it. It's so beautiful. Not to mention, smooth to the touch. Do you want Lita back or not? Latinum lasts longer than lust. Rule of acquisition 229. Maybe, but lust can be a lot more fun. Now, answer the question. Do you want her back or not? I'd give anything to hold her in my arms again. Leave some room. For what? For these. Oh, my Marauder Mo action figures. I thought you'd throw these out. All these years I've been keeping them in storage for you. I figured you'd want to take them back to Deep Space Nine with you. I sure do. Do you have any idea how much these are worth? 
Not as much as if you'd kept them in the original packaging, which is what I told you at the time. Even then, you were handing out sound financial advice. Thanks, Mookie. No. Thank you, Quark. Can you just imagine what the government, you know, the government trying to sell or set or fix prices on collectible toys, stamps, comic books, and the like? There would probably need to be quotas and toy comic book redistribution plans, and before you know it, (laughs) there wouldn't be any collectibles. Now, we had another person write us, again, in response to our post, and this is Ian C., and he wrote, Tyranny of the rich, along with the glory of racism and the clucking of the male, in terms of describing what I guess he thinks capitalism is about. That was the whole comment, and it was worth a, worth a response. I said, it's worth noting that only governments have the power to create a condition of tyranny, a condition which has never been nor can be caused by the quote-unquote rich. The only time that the rich exist under tyranny is when the rich have become wealthy through state confiscation of the citizens' wallets. On the other hand, under capitalism, the rich become so as a consequence of providing a good or service on a voluntary free market, which is the essence of capitalism with production and exchange being a private matter, as they should always be. A free market is a market free of coercion, either by criminals or of governments. Racism is a common, though not essential, symptom of collectivism, never capitalism, since the very notion of individualism runs counter to group identity. This is one of the main reasons that collectivism, fascism, socialism, communism, progressivism, etc., can be rightly considered less civilized. All are based on group identities and the initiation of force to confiscate wealth for purposes not related to governance. Civilized behavior prohibits the use of force except in response to force and enforces the condition of consent, the ruling principle of economic exchange under capitalism. And finally, we imagine that the male clucking, end quote, refers to some kind of sexism, another form of collectivist thinking that also disappears under capitalism. Women were eventually emancipated, but with the advent of capitalism, for the same reasons that slavery itself was eliminated by capitalism. True wealth cannot be created under any other condition besides capitalism. The condition of freedom must exist before people have the security necessary to create and keep the fruits of their labors. That's what the capital is. Those who want to redistribute the wealth, which is capital, ignore cause and effect. They think that the wealth merely exists, that some people possess it while others do not. Therefore, all that's necessary is to discover some way to distribute it equitably. But it's not about having wealth. It's about production. And production is a process, not an end. The creation of wealth is a process, a process that is eventually destroyed when overwhelmed by having that wealth forcibly redistributed. And with that, I'd like to close off with some comments made by Isabel Patterson from her God of the Machine that relates to all of this. First, the issue of language, these words that we've seen used. It's all Marxist language. You were correct in identifying that, Robert. And she writes, you know, Marxist terminology reduces verbal expression to literal nonsense on the basis of fact and usage. This is specifically the language of fools. For the deficiency which is indicated by the word fool is the incapacity to understand categories and the relations of things and qualities. Marx was a fool with a large vocabulary of long words. 
His theory of class war is utter nonsense by its own definition. It has no reference to either class or war if it relates to capital and labor. It's physically impossible for labor and capital to engage in war on each other. Capital is property, labor is men. And it's interesting, again, Isabel Patterson refers to both capitalism and money in this following passage uh, from The God of the Machine as well. And she says, the crucial test of private property is the attitude of government towards money. Devaluation of currency is outright expropriation. The British Empire was founded when the debased coinage was restored to a standard during the opening years of the reign of Elizabeth on the advice of Gresham. At the time, English trade was in distress, the national treasury was empty, the national credit was gone, and mercantile credit shaky, war was threatening, and a rebellion a possibility. In such circumstances, governments usually resort to repudiation, confiscation, and fiat currency. Instead, England took the opposite course. The world came under her sway. The British Empire ended 350 years later when England again debased her coinage, defaulted on her debts, confiscated private property, and abrogated personal liberty. These are not sentimental considerations. They constitute the mechanism of production and therefore of power. Personal liberty is the precondition of the release of energy. Private property is the inductor which initiates the flow. Real money is the transmission line. And then she adds, this is not a figure of speech or analogy, but a specific physical description of what actually happens. And Peterson also notes that when England rose to power in the sense of economically beating out her competitor nations, quote, the balance of power fell to England because England allowed the energy to flow most freely, which is to say that England conceded the most liberty to the individual by respecting private property and abandoning by degrees the practice of political trade monopolies. And that's pretty well says it all. That's, that's where we're at again today. We've got all these trade monopolies, crony politics, any case, he calls it the F word, and he says that most people are terrified of it. This is taken from a presentation to the Genius Network, a group of entrepreneurs and business people, just this past December 28th. And here's Alec Epstein. Apparently, it's impolite and unacceptable to use the F word in political or entrepreneurial circles, Robert. Go figure. So in the last couple decades, there's been a really important transformation, or I would say expansion, in how entrepreneurs think of themselves. We've always thought of ourselves as ambitious businessmen, individuals who want to make a transformative contribution to our fields. But increasingly, and I think this really started with the Gates Foundation, there's been this conception of the entrepreneur as an ambitious citizen, someone who wants to make a transformative contribution to human flourishing more broadly. Now, this is something that is definitely necessary. If you look at the state of the world, it's no surprise there are a lot of problems, or we can call them challenges. Just in my field, which is the, the field of energy, there are, one, there are over one billion people who do not have electricity. So we throw these numbers around, but, but think about this for a second. One billion people don't have electricity. So that's like saying if there was some completely evil person who went through every single town, in every single city, in every single state and province, of North America and Europe and cut off the power and it never came on again, that's the world that we live in. There are one, over one billion people who live like that. And as you know, there are many other problems in education and technology and healthcare and issues like that. 
And entrepreneurs have taken an interest in that. Most recently, Mark Zuckerberg, but here, Bill Gates, the most successful people in the world. And I think that's a good thing if, and this is a big if, if we know what we're doing, if we know what's actually going to make a transformative contribution to human flourishing. And I think that if we want to do that, actually, I'll say, I know if we want to do that, there is one word, one word that we must know and understand and promote above all. Because this is the one word, and I mean this literally, this is the one word that is the fundamental solution to every problem that I mentioned and every problem you can think of. When people understand and apply this word, it solves education, it solves healthcare, it progresses technology, it makes energy available to people. Just one word. And here's the interesting, about, interesting thing about this word. This word is something people are terrified of. How do I know they're terrified of it? Well, I, I first noticed this actually last year, last year at Genius Network, and this is gonna be a little mean to some people, but it's necessary. Everyone was talking about their different philanthropic causes, and I don't remember one person using this word. And then I read last year's letter by Mark Zuckerberg, and it was over 2,000 words, and he was telling, here's how I'm gonna spend $45 billion and improve humanity in all these ways, and yet this word didn't come up once, nor did any synonym. And it doesn't come up with Warren Buffett, it doesn't come up with Bill Gates, it's almost as if it's profanity, because people are unwilling to say it. And that's why I call it the F word. And the F word is, shout it out, Freedom, flourishing, very good. We'll get to that too. But freedom. Freedom. Now, why is that the one thing? Well, before we know what it is, it's important to know what freedom is. In particular, I mean individual freedom or political freedom. So this, it's really important to know exactly what we mean by freedom. So freedom is the ability to act without forcible restraint by others. It's the ability to act without forcible restraint by others, and that absolutely includes the government. Now, why is this so important? It's because our fundamental nature as human beings is that first we need to think of an idea of how to create value in the world, and then we have to be able to act on it. And life and human survival and flourishing are really that simple. We need to be able to think about an idea about how to create value in the world, and then we need to be able to act on it. And when we can do that, like in the United States of America, for the most part, unfortunately, it's disappearing in many ways. But when we can do that, we get amazing results. And when we can't do that, we get concentration camps. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue our, on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, Check out all of our past broadcasts archived for your listening convenience and enjoyment. So what we just listened to, of course, was Alex Epstein and the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, but he's also been very active talking about what he calls the F word and what he has to say about freedom 
is absolutely true. From experience, Bob and I uh, realized early on that the word freedom means many things to many people, and for many, it's a word that's become almost a profanity, most especially to those who wish to destroy it. It's like the word capitalism. It's unknown. Capitalism, the unknown ideal. Freedom, the unknown political ideal. In 1984, Bob and others began a political party called the Freedom Party. I joined a year later in 1985. But even at that time, there was still a discussion amongst its members about the name of the party. That discussion went on and on for many years. Basically, it centered around what the word freedom actually meant. And was it making people feel uncomfortable about the name of the party? We felt it at the time. Oh, very much so. And even a lot of the other people who were very pro-freedom were terrified of the word and didn't want to use it, including especially libertarians. They don't want to use that word. Oh, no, no. And, and you won't find conservatives using that word. And so who's left? The people who talk freedom are all on the left, and they're talking about a false form of freedom. Mm-hmm. It, I, I don't know, um, at the early time, this is before the internet, actually. Oh, way before, yeah. Uh, 1985, 84. But anyway, going door to door with Freedom Party literature, the response from many people at that door, especially from older people, was freedom. Freedom from whom? To them, to be free meant to be free from a foreign aggressor. They remembered the war. The communist Russians fought for their supposed freedom from the fascist Germans. The Chinese fought for their freedom from the Japanese. The Americans fought for their freedom from King George and the British. So to say that the word freedom means freedom from foreign occupiers or foreign aggressors, that's what I I will call intertribal freedom. Another uh, response by people who heard of uh, the Freedom Party for the first time was, but we are free. Meaning, of course, not just that there were no foreign invaders, but that we're not ruled by a tyrant or a dictator like a a Fidel Castro or a Khrushchev or a a Hitler. We live in a a state of freedom today simply because we have the ability to elect our governments. We collectively decide by the power of the ballot who gets to make the rules for us. What I, this was what I'm going to call intra-tribal freedom. So you have inter-tribal freedom, right. freedom from another tribe, intra-tribal freedom, freedom within the tribe basically itself. There's no dictator. Only a minority, in fact, a very small percentage of those making contact with the Freedom Party for the very first time understood the nature of the word freedom as the founders of that party understood it, as Bob understood it. Freedom to us meant individual freedom, what I will call extra-tribal freedom, or freedom from the tribe, freedom for the individual. For the purpose of this this discussion, extra-tribal freedom is what we're talking about here. No one else in your tribe has the right to use force against you. You got it. That's all we need. A lot of people think of that just as a rule of law. Yeah, no, it's not freedom from the Nazis. It's not freedom from a Khrushchev. It includes that, though. It's freedom from your neighbor. (laughs) It's freedom from other people on the street. The words tribal or tribe naturally stand as a placeholder for any collective, such as race, family, group, religion, political organization, nation, province, city, etc. When you are an advocate of individual freedom against the whims of the tribal leaders, 
or the collective force of the tribe, one of the first responses you get from your fellow man, your neighbor, is, but who'll build the roads? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the first things out of their mouths when you talk about individual freedom, freedom from the capricious nature of a socialist government. Who'll build the roads? In other words, their definition of freedom in a political context was intra-tribal. One must accept the dictates of the leaders of the tribe so that order for the whole tribe is achieved. This order is represented by the tribe having a system of roads, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Their response was also one of incredulity. How can an individual be free from the tribe that he's a part of? Why would anyone want to be free from the tribe? So for them, anyone advocating individual freedom is being radical. He's being antisocial, anti-tribal, a heretic. That's an interesting observation, Robert. I think there's a lot of truth in that. People think that individualism and individual rights are uh, are an individualistic concept when they're not. It's a social concept. Yes. And that's the irony. The, the, when you say when we say that a person has individual rights, he is the political unit. The individual. That's all it means. It doesn't mean he's not part of a group. But that is where the rights begin and end, right there with that individual. And, and everyone has the same rights. That's the, that's the thing that prevents some from violating the rights of others. Exactly. You got it. Now, of course, advocates of individual freedom, um, once, once they understand this uh, definition, they find themselves trying to educate their neighbor that wishing to be free from the arbitrary force of the tribe does not mean we're advocates of anarchy. You know, we're advocating that the tribe defend our rights as individuals. That's it. We want to live amongst the tribe. We need to live amongst others. That's what we do. Human nature is gregarious. We trade with each other. We meet each other. We talk to each other. We're social beings. But that doesn't give anybody the right to violate our freedom, our rights. That's all we're saying. Then you have to define what an individual right is, you know. Because when you talk of rights... People often believe you have, you know, a a right to a job or a right to a free education. When I joined the Freedom Party of Ontario, I got into a morass of ignorance out there trying to educate and communicate to people who don't understand the basic definitions of some very fundamental terms, freedom, capitalism, rights. So you're out there educating people. You're trying to tell them what freedom means, what capitalism means, what rights means. And that ends up into another morass of a philosophical discussion of the nature of man. It becomes a very heavy topic trying to, uh, trying to talk to somebody about what individual freedom is. So in today's world, it's very easy to understand why people think of the word freedom as being profane. They don't want to talk about it. It's too heavy a topic. On the face of it, it appears to be an affront to society. And since your neighbor is a member of society, he takes it as a personal insult. He takes it as a personal insult when you say to him, I want to be free. I want to be free from any capricious uh, actions you might take politically against me. That's a personal affront. People, people take it personally. Especially if they have intentions of doing something against you. Which, unfortunately, <laughs> most do. That's the thing. Most people want your money taken from you to give to their pet projects. Not necessarily to them personally, but they want free education. Yep. Well, where are you going to get the money for that? If they want the roads. Okay, where, where are you going to get the money for that? You're going to get it from me. I look at things very personally myself. 
So when you go out and you vote liberal, like a Kathleen Wynne or a Pierre Trudeau or a Justin Trudeau, or you go out and you vote conservative, like a Stephen Harper, um, and they take actions which violate my rights, which make me unfree, I take that as a personal affront from my neighbor who voted for those people. That's just the way it is. You need to be courageous, just like Alex Epstein says, or Epstein says. You need to be courageous to be an advocate for individual freedom because for most people, you're challenging what they believe in. You're asking people to accept a new political paradigm, a paradigm which is replacing a very long history of collectivism. So to just give you one example of China, which is still a place that has massive problems with freedom, but under Mao Zedong, farmers were not allowed to think and to act freely in terms of how they use their farms. And so what happened? The government got to dictate to them what they would do, and the government dictated really irrational things, and it was the biggest starvation in history. 40 million people died, 40 million people. That's bigger than most states in the US. Then what happened? Well, the government certainly didn't become totally free, but it started liberating people, and it allowed individuals to start thinking and acting about how to use their own property. And suddenly, the starvation almost completely ended. It helped China become much more wealthy, and the poverty rate around the world uh, uh, got driven down dramatically because of China's situation. So this one thing, this simple thing, freedom, is at the root of everything, if we understand it in that precise way. And you can take any field, and this is how it works. So if we're serious about being ambitious citizens, if as entrepreneurs we want to be ambitious citizens, we should be talking about freedom all the time. So that's what freedom is. Now the question is, why don't we talk about it? It's not an accident. I didn't just reveal something that's never been discovered in history, right? The connection between freedom and human flourishing is absolute. It's been demonstrated many times. Why don't we talk about it? Well, I think there are two basic reasons. Lack of study and lack of courage. Lack of study and lack of courage. If we have a goal as entrepreneurs, let's say we want to sell more of our product, what do we do? We, we, we study the science of business. For instance, we'll study the science of marketing. But often when we get into the realm of promoting human flourishing around the world, we don't take it seriously as a science. Just somebody has a good idea and we give them money or we join a cause. That's complete BS. You can't accomplish anything that way. If you have a goal in life, you need to study what are the root causes of achieving this goal. And there are several fundamental root causes of mass human flourishing. And the one I'm focusing on today is freedom, because that's the ultimate condition that's necessary. So as entrepreneurs, if we want to make this kind of impact, we need to commit to studying the root causes, the fundamentals of human flourishing. We can't just do things and think that we're because, so, because we're so smart, we can make a big difference. And this is particularly true with freedom. And here's a fact about history that's amazing and scary. Never in the history of the world, to my knowledge, has any country ever become prosperous through the philanthropy of wealthy people. Never has a country not become prosperous when it has significantly expanded individual freedom. So all the philanthropy in the world won't help people, and freedom will absolutely help them. So if you want to be the best philanthropist, be a freedom fighter. But you need, you need to study it, and the other thing you need to do is have courage. Why do you need to have courage to be a freedom fighter? Because freedom is unpopular. It is not popular as a word, right? People smile when you say freedom. 
because they're vague about it. But if it really means the ability to act without forcible restraint by others, guess what? Guess what? The vast majority of people in the world believe that they have a right to forcibly restrain others. I'm going to bring up some controversial examples. Some of you will get uncomfortable, and this will prove my point about courage. different points in history, every major religion has had massive violations of freedom. Right now, the leading violator of freedom in the world in terms of a religion is Islam. They, there are people, there are many people, it's a religion, 1.6 billion people, not anywhere near that violent, but a huge percentage who believe that we should be enslaved to a particular religion. Many other religions believe that. Here's a more controversial example if you think there is one. In my field, energy, I believe that an incredibly destructive movement that is harming billions of lives is the movement that calls itself the environmental movement. This movement opposes, they say they're in favor of solar and whatnot. You may be in favor of anything you want as long as you leave me free to do what I want. But they're against the three most effective sources of power for human flourishing, and that would be fossil fuels, nuclear, and hydro. The second two have nothing to do with CO2, so it's not about CO2. They're against every practical form of power so why are then Zuckerberg and Gates and Buffett, why aren't they opposing these people, the environmentalists, the Islamic totalitarians? Because it's scary. Because it's scary to have courage. It's a hell of a lot easier if you're a billionaire to give away billions of dollars to politically correct charities than to take a real stand for the issues that matter most. So what do we do about it? Last time I talked about this issue at a Genius Network meeting, people understandably said to me, okay, great, I'm excited, what do I do? And what I said was, well, there are a bunch of good pro, they're not really that good, but they're okay, some pro-freedom organizations and go find them. And people understandably found this not very motivating. And I thought about this and I realized, well, what needs to happen is there needs to be a new organization, but really a new movement. And this movement needs to be a movement of people who absolutely 100% care about human flourishing above all. They care about it more than they care about human approval. And so I call this the Human Flourishing Movement, and I just posted the link where people can learn about it today at humanflourishingmovement.com, so you can check that out. But the idea is we are a group of people who take human flourishing seriously, and that means we study the root causes of it. We don't just blindly act, and it means we have the courage to act when we discover what the right root causes are. And I think this movement absolutely needs to be led by entrepreneurs. Last year has convinced me of this, because what are entrepreneurs? We're people who believe passionately in the right goal, which in this case is human flourishing. We're willing to learn whatever we need to accomplish it. That's studying. And when it comes down to it, if we're right, we don't really care what people think. So you should join the human flourishing movement. And as a first step, I want to hear F-bombs dropped all over this conference. If you ask Google to define freedom, the first definition is the one I would use in any conversation about the individual versus the collective. Noun, freedom, the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. This is perfect. It covers all three activities of the individual necessary for his survival and happiness, and, as Alex Epstein says, flourishing, the thinking, speaking, and acting. While not many people would disagree that in Canada, the United States, and the rest of the world, we are free to think and speak 
without, in, without hindrance or restraint. That's not always the case. Except in the United States, here in Canada, there are severe penalties for speaking against certain protected collectives. There are severe penalties, including imprisonment, for simply offending people because of the collective they belong to. The United States have their First Amendment. Their freedom of speech is protected to a much greater extent than it is here in Canada. Now, and while such draconian use of force here in Canada is somewhat rare, it exists, and it's used. So in this sense, we are not free. The freedom to act is the freedom most often hindered or restrained in all countries of the world. To put it simply, if you were destitute, totally destitute, and wished to make a couple of dollars shining shoes on the sidewalk, you'd be arrested. Because any activity you do to survive, you must first pay the state a fee. You must then pay the state taxes on what you earn. You must abide by literally thousands of regulations which, taken as a whole, discourage most of us from entering into any business venture. Businessmen, in my estimation, are perhaps the most courageous people in society. Here are two personal examples of how my freedom, and yours by extension, was violated. Example number one. At one point in my life, I set up a martial arts school. Knowing full well of the many regulations surrounding conducting any business in this province, this country, this city, I chose simply to ignore many of the rules and regulations in order to get my business up and running. I thought it best to act now and ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> one city regulation required that my school have separate washrooms for male and female. The place I had only had fixtures for one washroom. So what did I do? I ignored the regulation and placed a unisex symbol on the door to the single toilet facility. And, and my students knew that, you know, um, that it was for either sex. If inspected, I would have been forced to renovate the cost of which would have put me out of business. It would cost tens of thousands of dollars, or I'd have to find another place. It was just simply prohibitive. Or I'd have to have to close the school. Luckily, since I did not register my business with the city, another violation, I was never inspected and my business went ahead with zero complaints from my students and we all prospered as a result. The point being that I lived and worked knowing that day to day for any time an inspector could come into my place of business and shut me down for the smallest of violations of several thousands of regulations and laws. How funny you say that because I've just collected tons of, of newspaper clippings of here in the city of London, Ontario, how our downtown is just being shut down by, by, by municipal politicians, constantly closing businesses down that have been around for years, just dumping regulations on them. You know, just because you don't see jackbooted thugs and tanks going down the street doesn't mean that we're not free, or, yeah. right, or we are slaves. Well, the <laughs> symptoms are the increasing poverty, the increasing hydro rates, the, the, the poor government services. This is the coming poverty. Here's example number two. I live in the country... And recently, my propane tank got filled. The bill came to $552. Besides the $63 in sales tax, there was a new item on my bill for the very first time. I was charged $20.52 for something called carbon price, which is part of the collective's attempt to prevent climate change by redistributing wealth. <laughs> right. Now, while $20.52 may not seem like a lot of money, that amount is almost exactly the average hourly wage rate in this province in Ontario. So to pay this amount 
I am basically forced to work for an hour based on the whim of a government who is essentially buying votes based on the notion that it can save the world by taxing carbon. I have to work an hour to pay for that um, Just on that one dream. on that one bill, yeah. on that one fuel. That one time. I was physically robbed of an hour of my life and the fruits of my labor by the state, and I receive absolutely nothing in return. This is not freedom. This is slavery. That's when you put it into context. When you actually start to think of how long you have to work to pay for things which are unjust, like this carbon price, then you start to think about the word freedom, as I do. But to many of my neighbors, I'm being radical. Freedom? Slavery? What am I talking about? Just pay the damn $20.52 and get on with your life. Well, this is exactly what I did, of course. <laughs> no choice. <laughs> I paid the carbon tax and moved on with my life. Explaining this to you good people is a part of moving on with my life, by the way. These two examples are a drop in the bucket of the intrusions on your personal freedom we experience every day from our friends and neighbors who choose to ignore the extra-tribal definition of freedom and prefer instead of think of freedom as either one of the other two definitions of that word I explained to you earlier. In Google, the other two definitions are 1. Absence of subjugation or subjection to foreign domination and 2. Absence of despotic government, the inter- and intra-tribal freedom I was talking about earlier. Everyone can understand these, and they do. And as a matter of fact, that's usually where their definition of the word freedom stops. There's no mistaking that when a tank from another country rolls down your street, your freedom is being violated. That's pretty self-evident. There's no mistaking that when a jackbooted officer of the government arrests you for subversion and puts you in prison or in front of a firing squad, your freedom is violated. That's pretty obvious too. But it's difficult for many to understand that when a third to a half of your income is taken from you to pay for things which you do not benefit from, that your freedom is being violated. That's a difficult concept to get your head around. This kind of violation of one's freedoms require a deeper level of understanding. It's not as self-evident as the tanks rolling down the street. It's much more of an abstract kind of freedom than having a gun shoved in your face. It's a subtle freedom. Sometimes a violation of freedom takes the form of reduced opportunities. This program is being broadcast from a shortwave transmitter in the United States and Germany. Because here in Canada, it's illegal for anyone to set up a shortwave transmitter. The lost opportunity we all experience from the money taken from us in taxation. This is an, uh, um, there's an advertisement here in Canada for the government lottery. It goes something like this. You know, imagine what you could do with a million dollars. Well, over the course of my lifetime, my wife and I have, have had that much money taken from us in taxation. So yeah, I could well imagine what I could have done with that, with that money if our employers did not have to deduct it at source. Once again, there are people out there who are saying, oh, he's against taxation. Who'll build the roads? <laughs> For an answer to this question, I direct you to Just Right Episode 161 and 334, where I explain in detail how the tribe can fund a proper government with only a very small sales tax and zero income tax. Now, income tax or progressive taxation has always reminded me of a tractor sled pulling competition. You know the ones I'm talking about, yeah, Bob? Yeah. Yeah. If you're not familiar with this activity, let me explain. A farm tractor or a truck pulls a sled along the ground, a very large sled, obviously. Situated atop the sled near the rear, over the wheels, is a very heavy weight. 
As the tractor advances, the motion of the moving tractor turns a sprocket which moves the weight ever forward until a point is reached where the weight pushes the front of the sled so far into the ground that the tractor can no longer pull it. Progressive income taxation is just like that. The harder you work, the harder it is to advance, until at some point it makes more sense just to shut your motor off and concede the race. What a great analogy. To many, freedom is profane because they find it an offense to be reminded of just how much they're being taken advantage of. People like Alex, Alex Epstein, Bob Metz, myself, are criticized, marginalized, ostracized for having the courage to point out the one glaring flaw in our so-called free countries. That flaw being that we're not free. <laughs> we may have defeated the Nazis. We may have be able to elect our leaders such as they are. We may be able to enjoy some of the fruits of our labor and exercise some of our rights as individuals, but we're far from being free. It may appear that there is an abundance of freedom in this country, and there's much to be said for that. But to think that we are completely free is a delusion. Nobody wants to be reminded that we live in a world of force and coercion, most of it coming from our next-door neighbor. For people like us, every waking day is yet another reminder that we are living in chains. Our change, chains may be very long, and we may be given some mobility, but we live in chains nonetheless. We're all chained to each other. What we need, each and every one of us, is to take heed of men like Alex Epstein and Bob Metz and Paul McKeever and a host of others that are out there talking about this subject and take part in a revolution against our collectively imposed slavery and advance the cause of individual freedom. Such acknowledgement and commitment to freedom requires paying a price, however. It requires risking being labeled a radical or heretic. It may require your time and your money, but as the saying goes, freedom isn't free. <laughs> well, Robert, Donald Trump becomes president tomorrow. Does Donald Trump really know what freedom is? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll soon find out. But of course, the good news is that we do know what freedom is. And with that in mind, we will continue our journey in the right direction next week when we invite you to join us. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Good evening and welcome to the Money Program. Tonight on the Money Program, we're going to look at money. Lots of it, on film and in the studio. Some of it in nice piles, others in lovely clanky bits of loose change. Some of it neatly counted into fat little hundreds, delicate fibres stuffed into bulging wallets, nice crisp clean checks, pert pieces of copper coinage thrust deep into trouser pockets, romantic foreign money rolling against the thigh with rough familiarity, beautiful wayward curly-cued banknotes, filigree copper grating cheek by jowl with tumbling hexagonal milled edges rubbing gently against the terse leather of beautifully balanced bank books. <laughs> Sorry. But I love money. All money. I've always wanted money to handle, to touch, 
the smell of the rainwashed Florin, the lure of the lira, the glitter and the glory of the guinea, the romance of the ruble, the feel of the franc, the heel of the Deutschmark, the cold antiseptic sting of the Swiss franc, and the sunburned splendor of the Australian dollar.